This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Gemstone. One of the things we have to say for Dungeons & Dragons is that the name of that particular fantasy adventure game is, at least, pretty honest. The game is pretty much exactly what it says on the can, so to speak. The heroes of the game spend most of their time descending into dark underground catacombs, you know, dungeons, and fighting all sorts of mythical monsters like, you know, dragons, just to pick one example. It's as much truth in advertising as you're going to get from a game these days. What the heck is Sekiro, anyway? What does Shadows Die Twice mean? Heck, it's a From Software game. The only thing dying in that game is the protagonist. And they're going to die a heck of a lot more than twice, so... We appreciate that Dungeons & Dragons is nice and clear about its gameplay. Clarity is very valuable. Of course, the name Dungeons & Dragons does leave out one very important facet of the core gameplay. You descend into dungeons, fight dragons, and take their stuff. We're guessing they couldn't come up with a word that starts with D and ends with getting rich? Dungeons and Dragons and Dough? Speaking of which, have you ever wondered why bread and dough became synonyms for money or wealth? Well, it dates back to the 19th century. Bread was, of course, a staple of the working class diet. Well, honestly, it's a staple of the human diet, and it's been so for ages. So it was common to refer to working as earning one's daily bread. But in 1851, a clever brother of Yale University's Alpha Sigma Phi fraternity substituted the word dough for bread in a column in the fraternity's newsletter, the Yale Tomahawk. And it appears the clever wordplay just caught on. Speaking of clever wordplay, let's go back to the end of our last episode. See, if you didn't notice, or if you just decided to start listening to the podcast at this very episode... We spent the last couple of episodes talking about precious metals and coins. Exactly the sort of stuff heroes expect to loot from the dragons they kill in the dungeons. But those aren't the only treasures heroes expect to find. And as they say, all that glitters is not gold. Well, when we say they, we mean Shakespeare. Though Shakespeare actually said all that glisters is not gold in his play The Merchant of Venice... But in his day, glisters was a synonym for glitters. And in truth, he was restating an old idiom from a much earlier age. For example, Chaucer once famously said, It is not all gold that glareth. And before him, in the late 1100s, a French monk wrote, Do not hold everything gold that shines like gold. And there was a Latin quote, Non omne nitit arum est which may have come from Aesop and roughly means not everything that's bright is gold. Heroes' gems and jewels are frequently found mixed in among the gold and silver and copper of every dragon's hoard. And that leads us to the word game we ended the previous episode on. Let's talk about carrots, carrots, purity, weight, and carob seeds. Now, you might have heard the word carrot, that's C-A-R-A-T, in relation to both gold, as in 14-carat gold, 
and in terms of gems, like a one-carat diamond engagement ring. And this can be very confusing, because those two measures are measuring very different things. But it's less confusing if you live in the United States of America. Because in order to clarify the confusion between those two different measures, which we will talk about in a moment, in America, we spell and abbreviate them differently. The fineness, the purity of precious metals is measured in carats with a K, an abbreviated KT. The weight of gemstones is measured in carats with a C, an abbreviated CT. Let's start with fineness of gold, or any other precious metal. Fineness refers to purity, as we mentioned in the last episode. That is, if you have a lump of mostly gold, how much of that lump is actually pure gold, and how much of that metal is something else? It's the proportion of the pure metal to the impurities. And it's generally measured in parts out of 24. So 24 karat gold is 24 parts gold to zero parts anything else. 18 karat gold is 18 parts gold to six parts something else, and so on. Now, there is another way to do it in common use, and that's to express as parts per thousand. So 24 karat gold is actually 999. And that's not referred to, by the way, as carats with a K or a C. That's just referred to as fineness, or abbreviated fine. In the quick parlance of assayers, such gold would be called three nines fine which just means that a lump of gold is 999 parts gold and one part something else. Notice that even pure gold isn't completely pure when you measure like that. That's because it's actually pretty near impossible to completely purify gold, or anything really. The purest type of gold that can be regularly produced is produced by the Royal Canadian Mint for commemorative coins, and it is 999 0.99 parts gold to 0.01 parts not gold. They call that five nines fine, 999.99. The purest gold ever produced was produced in Perth in 1957, and it was six nines fine, 999.999. So why is there this weird carrot standard that's parts out of 24? Where did that come from, and why is it called a carrot? Well, as near as we can tell, that 24-part thing goes back to the Roman Emperor Constantine in 309 CE. Now, if you remember from our last episode, the Romans mostly used silver for their coinage. That's because silver was what they had, but the Romans also won a war against Carthage. Eventually. We've talked about that before. Now, the Carthaginians controlled much of the Iberian Peninsula, that's where Spain is today, during the time of the Punic Wars. Those wars were named because the Carthaginians were actually Phoenicians, or Punes, that had decided they were a big enough colony to start their own colonies and became their own thing. But after the Second Punic War, the Carthaginians were eventually forced to abandon Iberia, or Hispania, as it was called. And what did the Romans find when they moved in? Well, they found that Hispania had lots of silver and gold mines. So it was in 309 CE that the Emperor Constantine started minting a new coin, the Golden Solidus, 
Now, this gold coin weighed about 175th of a Roman pound, which made it 24 times as heavy as the standard silver coin in Rome at the time, the Roman Siliqua. So it was 24 not-gold coins to match the weight of one gold coin. And you can see where this goes. But why was that called a carat? Well, because at the time, assayers and money changers and merchants needed a simple way to measure small weights. A silver coin weighed, after all, about one seventeen thousand seven hundred twenty-eighth of a pound. Weighing that against a pound was kind of pointless. They needed a small, standard something they could use to balance the scale for small measures of weight. And they used the seeds of the carob plant, Cartonia siliqua. Yeah, notice how the taxonomic name of the plant has siliqua in it? That's why. And actually, it was the Greeks who called it a carotion. The Romans called it a siliqua. But as often happened, the Roman method caught on, but with the Greek name. So that's why gold's fineness is measured in carats, and why carats are parts out of 24. And that's also why gems are measured in carats, because as you might have noticed, carats are actually a unit of weight. And that's true even with fineness. When we say gold is 18 carats, we mean if you weigh a lump of gold, divided that weight by 24, and then multiply by 18, you'll get the weight of the gold in the lump. So it's parts out of 24 by mass. That's how the cool kids say it anyway. Now weight, or carat weight, is also used to measure the mass of gemstones. But in this case, it's a more absolute measure. It's not a measure of purity, it's actually just the weight of the stone. A carat is one-fifth of a gram and gemstones are measured to the nearest hundredth of a carat. So you could have a gemstone that was a 0.10 carat stone. In grams, that would work out to be about 0.02 grams. But gem cutters and jewelers refer to fractions of a carat as points. So that 0.10 carat stone is also called a 10 point stone. Carat weight is one of the so-called four C's of gemstones. It's one of the four qualities that modern jewelers use to set the value of a gemstone. But believe it or not, it's not the most important of the four C's. So let's run through those four C's quickly. You know carat weight now. That's just the mass of the stone. And note, it is mass, weight, and not size. Some gems are heavier than others. It varies by type. There's also color. Now, every gem has a preferred color. It's based on the type of gem that it is. But depending on how pure the gem is and the presence of impurities, the color can vary a little. And every type of gem has a preferred range of colors which encompass three different qualities. First is the hue. That's what the color actually looks like. Red, blue, green, yellow. That's hue. Then there's the tone, the lightness or darkness of the color. And then there's the saturation, which means how close the stone is to a pure example of the same hue. That is, how red is it compared to pure red? That's color. There's also the cut of the stone. Gemstones can be cut, polished, and shaped in all sorts of different ways. 
You can have smooth round or oval stones, or you can have those neat multifaceted cuts like baguette cuts and cushion cuts and pear cuts and trillion cuts and on and on and on. The cut reveals and enhances the natural beauty of the stone. Finally, there's clarity. Clarity sounds like it refers to clearness, right? But it actually refers to the gem being free of what they call clarity characteristics. That is, a gem with a high clarity has few or no visible imperfections. Now, the imperfections run in two different types. Inclusions, which are imperfections inside the gem, and blemishes, which are imperfections on the surface of the gem. But the overall transparency of the gemstone is actually also a factor in clarity. Now, every gem has its own particular characteristics, and each gem is sought after to a different degree for different qualities. Rubies are very rare, so they are very valuable compared to topaz. But once you get past that, it's the four C's that are used to determine how valuable one ruby is compared to another, or one topaz compared to another. And the single most important C on that list is, surprisingly, color. The brightest, purest colors get the highest prices. So that's how you value a gemstone. But what is a gemstone? Well, that's a tricky question. I mean, we can all name different gemstones. Diamonds, rubies, sapphires, topaz, moonstone, bloodstone, jade, amber, pearl, and on and on and on. Fantasy role-playing games are full of lists of different types of gems for the heroes to discover, along with their values in the fantasy economy of the system. But it's actually surprisingly difficult to define gemstones generally. For example, one common definition used by many international groups defines them as minerals that have been chosen for their beauty and durability, then cut and polished for use as human adornment. Fine and dandy. But even our short list of gems included a few entries that don't fit that definition. And they are some of the oldest gemstones that anyone has ever valued on Earth. Take, for example, amber. Amber is a lightweight, smooth, yellow or yellow-orange gemstone. It's easy to work, easy to polish, and quite pretty. But also, not a mineral. It's not a rock. If you read Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park or saw the movie, the original movie, the good one, you know amber is actually fossilized tree sap. It's the blood of an ancient tree hardened into a rock-like durability by passage of geological ages. Another example is the pearl. That's a milky, opaque, opalescent gemstone that is found inside certain shelled mollusks or other animals. Oysters, for example. Basically, what happens is that a piece of grit gets trapped inside the soft body of the mollusk and begins to irritate the thing. The mollusk secretes calcium carbonate to seal off the irritant to prevent it from damaging its soft tissue. It's basically what the human immune system does when it secretes mucus to wash away foreign bodies like pollen. Pearls are basically hardened oyster snot. Which also means they are organic, not mineral. Though you could also argue that the mollusk's calcium carbonate is a mineral. It's just deposited by an organic process. But that's just a further impediment to clarity. In point of fact, you can find a gemstone to break each and every part of that definition. Opals aren't durable, they are delicate. Uncut and unpolished gemstones are valued in some cases, and many gems aren't worn as human adornment at all. They're collected and displayed as treasures all their own. 
There actually isn't one definition of a gemstone, not a good one anyway. The science of gemology, as it's called, is actually fairly new, having only been attested starting in the 1930s, and is fairly unscientific. But the actual practice of collecting gems goes back a long, long way. And it starts with finding pretty rocks and breaking them. All over the world, different groups of ancient peoples came upon particularly beautiful natural rocks, or rock-like things. The first gemstones, which were being gathered by ancient people several thousand years before the Common Era, the first gemstones were the ones that were easy to find and easy to shape. Amber, turquoise, coral, lapis lazuli, and malachite. And different peoples treasured different stones based on what was available. Amber was common around the Baltic Sea and in southern and eastern Asia. Turquoise, a sky-blue mineral, was prized by Egyptians, Tibetans, Persians, and native North Americans. Coral, another organic mineral, was worked in India and northern Africa and in America, at least in the coastal areas. Jade was very popular in China as well as among the Aztecs and Mayans, extremely so. Of course, the story of jade also illustrates some of the problems with talking generally about gemstones. See, jade is a very durable mineral that can be polished to a brilliant shine. It's normally associated with a bright green color, but actually can come in all sorts of colors, lavender, yellow, blue, black, red, orange, even gray. Because it was so durable, it was very useful in tool use. Axe heads and stoneworking tools made of jade have been discovered that are over 5,000 years old. But it was also used for adornments. Buttons and brooches, pins, talismans, and so on were all made of jade. But in 1863, a French chemist studying the mineral made a very interesting discovery. There's no such thing as jade. Or rather, there were two different things both being called jade. And we later discovered he was wrong. There are three things called jade. Three different minerals that look similar enough and have similar enough properties that they could all be mistaken for each other. He identified two, which he called jadeite and nephrite. And later it was discovered that what he called nephrite could also be broken down into two different, easily confused minerals. There was actinolite and tremolite. Interestingly, later on, archaeologists noted that the Chinese craftsmen had a pretty discerning eye. They'd noticed that some jade was better than others. It was easier to work, but harder and more durable, and it had a brighter sheen when polished. It came from the region of Burma, now called Myanmar. And they loved it over all other forms of jade. So they did notice the difference somewhat. Rubies and sapphires are another great example of the hodgepodge nature of gemology. Rubies and sapphires are actually the same mineral. They're made out of corundum, which contains aluminum and oxygen, but different impurities in the corundum create different colors. A red corundum is called a ruby. Any other color corundum is called a sapphire. Heck, some red corundum is called sapphire if it's got too much purple in it. Ruby has been particularly treasured throughout history. It was once called the king of gemstones. It is extremely hard. The only harder gemstone is diamond, and rubies can be polished or cut to a beautiful fiery luster. In fact, in the era of Dungeons and Dragons, diamonds shouldn't even be on the market. See, diamonds had their heyday back in the 4th century BCE, when they were discovered in India, 
They were prized particularly for their ability to engrave metal as well as for their beauty, and they were believed to have medicinal powers. They were traded heavily between China and India along the Silk Road, and then, well, the diamond mines in India ran out, and no one had found any other diamonds anywhere. And then, a lucky teenager named Erasmus Jacobs found a pretty pebble along the banks of the Orange River in southern Africa, which turned out to be a 22-carat diamond. That was in 1866. Prospectors found more diamonds, including a massive 85-carat deposit in the region. And suddenly, the diamond rush was on in Africa, and boy, did they ever find diamonds. They found lots of diamonds. Africa was lousy with diamonds. And so the gem went from off the market to back on the market to actually pretty dang common. Diamonds quickly went from being sought after by the elite to being overlooked in favor of other rarer stones, including the extremely rare red ruby. Diamond mines lost a lot of value. And so, in 1880, Englishman Cecil John Rhodes was able to buy up most of the diamond mines in Africa. He then formed De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited. The value of diamonds was still very low, but with the world's diamond supply mostly under the control of one company, they could limit the amount of diamonds going to market, and thus the price started to creep up. And then in 1947, De Beers hired the N.W. Ayer Advertising Agency to create an advertising campaign that would push diamond values back up and up and up. That was the beginning of the Diamond is Forever campaign that introduced the idea of the diamond engagement ring. Nowadays, almost 80% of all engagement rings worldwide contain diamonds. So the value of the diamond over other gems is actually a pretty modern thing, even though it's reflected in D&D treasure tables. Something else that tends to get depicted in D&D that shouldn't be? All those beautiful multifaceted gems. See, the thing is, you remember those four C's? They're all modern. Well, modern-ish. Because actually cutting gems into beautiful multifaceted shapes? That's really hard. Before the mid-1400s, gems weren't cut. The best that could be done was polishing. Gems were polished into rounded or domed shapes called cabochon. The softer, easier-to-work ones could be drilled or bruted. Drilling is the practice of fracturing a gem by hitting it with something hard. Bruting is the practice of grinding the gem's surface smooth. But lapidary, the process of working, forming, and finishing gemstones, that only got started with the development of sophisticated grinding wheels in the 1400s like Eidar Oberstein in Germany. Until then, most gems were polished and engraved pretty-looking rocks or rock-like things. Cut and clarity just weren't an issue. Just like clarity still isn't, and will never be, an issue in defining gems or modern gemology. Or in the names of our favorite games. After all, gems are valuable because they're pretty. And games are valuable because they're fun. And that's why it's always the gem's color that wins the day. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash GM Word of the Week. 
You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.